Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. This podcast is being recorded as part of the 40th Critical Care Congress here in San Diego, California. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Joining us today are Troy E. Batterton, PharmD, a pharmacist at Lakeland Regional Medical Center, and Dean Sandifer, MD, an internist, intensivist at Lakeland Regional Medical Center as well. We're going to be talking about discussion of sedation strategies in critical care. And again, it's been a big theme at this Congress, as it has been over the last few years, optimizing sedation in the critically ill patient, minimizing delirium in the critically ill patient. And what's very exciting is to look at the translation of the science into practice. And that's what we're going to be focusing in on here today as part of the podcast. And I want to thank you both very much for taking time out of your schedules to be part of the podcast today. I thought we'd begin by allowing you to both introduce yourselves and talk a little bit about the clinical practice setting in which each of you work. I'm Dean Sandifer. I'm an adult intensivist and medical director of the intensive care units at Lakeland Regional. Uh, Lakeland Regional is an 850-bed hospital. It's the third largest hospital in the state of Florida. Uh, We have roughly 70 intensive care unit beds in four different intensive care units. Uh, We have 24-7 in-house critical care available, and I did all of my training at the LSU Health Science Center. Uh, My name is Troy Batterton. I am a clinical pharmacy specialist for critical care at Lakeland Regional, and we cover all four intensive care units, MICU, SICU, trauma, and C3, which is kind of a mix of Um, stroke and uh, post-coronary events, some MICU overflow. I trained at the University of Florida and then went on to do a residency in pain management at the Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa. And um, again, as we were discussing before, the focus today is going to be on uh, having the two of you here is just sort of the epitome of, of perfection from my standpoint to see pharmacy and the intensivist working together to say, We need to get our protocol going. We need to work usually with nurses. And the questions are, how do you design a protocol that works? And how do you make sure that it keeps working? And I thought I'd let you guys talk about that. Well, the perspectives on sedation, really, you you just can't deal with sedation as a single entity. Um, First of all, I think we'll drill down to what we're talking about. And we're talking about the sedation of mechanically ventilated patients in the intensive care unit. Certainly, there are sedation issues in non-ventilated patients. But... The ventilated patients are the most problematic. Uh, Sedation is just part of an overall strategy. Uh, The desire is to take every ventilator patient and minimize their time on the ventilator and maximize their comfort and the the experience on the ventilator. Uh, So you can't just tease out sedation. It it really is a part of of the whole process. Uh, The the components uh, as we see them are many, Uh, the pain control, Uh, the actual uh, sedation medications and doses and the detection and measurement of delirium, uh, the prevention of delirium, some things that we've noted that are are also a part of this big picture are the the evaluation of patients' home medications, uh, being aware of their substance abuse history, 
uh, and using early mobilization as well as protocolized uh, awakening and breathing trials. So it, it, it is, it just, it's difficult for us to talk about sedation without talking about kind of the whole picture. So Troy, would you like to talk a little bit about maybe some of the nuts and bolts of, of, of picking what the content is going to be? Uh, yes. Um, we have a fairly unique approach to protocol development when it comes to uh, sedating patients. Once we look at what either the clinical practice guidelines say or what is coming out of some major publications, critical care medicine and Vanderbilt and, and some things like that, we put together a protocol and through our ICU committee and then once we get it to, I think, probably a working draft form, we turn it into a poster size entity, two feet by three feet, and post one with an ink pen in every ICU for the nurses to comment, one that, that allows us to campaign very effectively. All It's placed in an area where they do um, nursing uh, shift report. And so all the nurses get a chance to see it, comment on it, write on it. The latest one we put up just before we left uh, for the Congress here had 25 comments in total. So it gives us an idea that everybody's seen it, uh, all the ICUs write on it. We generally offer a, you know, a prize with whatever ICU writes the most on it. So we get a lot of input, a lot of very, very appropriate input. And by the time we get that and digest it down, people have had, been, have had input. They feel like they've had buy-in. They see their comment turn into uh, a change in the order set, and and it creates um, uh, a neat way to then go ahead and trial PDSA style a new protocol in an ICU. So so this is fascinating. So you, you put it up mm -hmm. and then you say like what for a week or, or maybe even two, two. people can just write Whatever on it want. directly? Nurses, our respiratory therapists, even the unit coordinators can, can write and they come up with some very unique comments that as an ICU committee, you know, you may look at 20 or 30 pieces of literature to develop this, mm -hmm. but they will fine tune it very quickly and uh, it becomes something that they're then looking forward to implementing in whatever patients we begin to uh, apply this to. Do you ever get, uh, you know, one person writes something and somebody else crosses it off and puts something else? Sure. In Sometimes they, they answer their own questions, and that's really, it's good for us because then we can see many times people put their initials or their name next to it, and you can follow up with them, and what they they will admit was, uh, I didn't really want to write this, but I did anyway. You find out was brilliant idea, and it takes us to another level, and we change a side effect or whether you know we should start this, and their blood pressure is too low or or whatever, and uh, uh, it's always very helpful. Um, but it's so this rather than sort of a series of iterations, right? Was handed out this week and recollected, exactly. and then handed out next week and recollected, and we'll meet at the next committee meeting, right? You just get it out there and let everybody we have at it. We put it up it. on the wall, and they look at it and. Um, by the time it comes back around, many of them are already asking questions of one another. Did you see that? What do you think? Are you going to get a chance to trial it first? And then we give it to Dr. Sandifer to maybe select six perfect patients that we were pretty sure it'll work in just to kind of drive it around the block and then he takes it and there's our PDSA starting off. Um, I was going to ask you actually to talk about some of the specific uh, contents. I mean, one of the issues are, and I, I guess SCCM is working on another version of it, but the most recent major version was from O2 uh, with Judith Jacoby and all that. And I was just wondering, is it that the, you took that and sort of adapted it to your style, or what are some of the content well, issues? Well, Riker and Frazier uh, published some things, I think, in O9, which are sedation paradigms. And, and we're looking at, I think, what we've seen in SEDCOM and the men's trial and, uh, and Pratika sent me his, 
one of his drafts in PDF form so we could adjust it, and we actually have a, an approved IRB protocol on sedating patients uh, at, our, at our institution. And we, we try and look at both guidelines and what has built from those guidelines to see, try and keep us on the edge. Um, and I was just going to ask, do, do you want to talk about it? I, I remember when going over this myself with the issues of, you know, starting with a continuous infusion of a narcotic mm. and things like that. I'm, I'm more than happy to hear some of the details of what you've decided, whoever. I mean, we have our two basic protocols are the pain protocol and the sedation protocol. They're, they're basically algorithms and they are nurse driven. The doc picks the initial medications. The, uh, the pain target is pretty universal. Um, and the, we also uh, daily uh, define the target sedation score using the, the Richmond agitation scale. And the, the nurses are free within the parameters of the protocol to, to use bolus dosing, uh, continuous uh, drips, and, and communicate with us when, when the targets are not met. Um, certainly we, we would always prefer that the medications be given in, in bolus form rather than drips. Uh, but the reality is that there are there are many times where a, a drip is necessary. But but you you want the inertia to be back off, scale back, uh, continuously reevaluate what was working at 10 p.m. is now uh, too much at 3 a.m. and and when you kind of develop that mentality, uh, then then you're going to have a a, a better uh, result. I saw you wrote goals on there. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think one of the things we're moving to, and and we're very, I think, keen to the uh, pain goals and sedation goals and scoring, and we have that longitudinally on the nursing flow sheet. Um, what also we're really gearing a lot of our sedation towards is what is the goal for the patient today? Is it you know a trip to the CT scanner? Uh, is it an SAT, SBT? Uh, is it a mobility trial? How are we getting this patient up and what are we doing with them? And then how do we uh, take sedation and adjust it so the things that are really the goal for the day are met and, and achieved uh, with sedation as our balance, not as our driving force? So one of the issues that I, I have seeing at, at different places, different kinds of protocols, is um, there's two issues. One is you have to get buy-in from lots of different people, and that's sort of what you were talking about with letting it sit out there for a while, as everybody feels they must own a little piece of it. Right. And then the other issue is sort of over time deciding when it needs to be readdressed and how best to do that. And that sort of segues into one of my other big questions for you, which is deciding about integrating new, entire new kinds of drugs into this, and I thought I'd let you talk about that. You know, the, the, the way new drugs get brought into the mix are that you know, we hear about the drugs by reading literature or attending meetings. Uh, we and specifically invited some of the Vanderbilt people to come to our institution, uh, Art Wheeler and Brenda Pun and Wes Ely. We had them come talk to us about the CAM ICU and the, the you know, about Dexmedetomidae because we, we wanted to know if this is something that, that we should uh, take a look at. Uh, is this something we should wait on? Um, and we really wanted to kind of go to the source of, of who, who had the most experience. So that, that's, that's been the kind of the prototype new drug that we've incorporated. And, and we just try to utilize the available sources. Troy? Yeah. Um, you know, when we read these things coming out and we've gone to meetings and someone brings up a new idea and 
you know, like now we have meetings and what'd you think of this and what'd you see there? I think we were all sitting at the table when Brenda Pun uh, spoke on delirium and introduced a new agent, dexmedetomidine. And then we, you know, we were, I think, so captivated by it, we had her come to the institution and we've had some of her, her colleagues as well uh, over. And we seek out who the people are. Let's talk to who, how they did the study. Let's, let's not tear it apart as much as see how we could implement that here. If we want the study outcome, then we pretty much have to reproduce how they did it. And uh, we even went, my partner and I, Mike Semenko, uh, had run into some of the other um, study designers from other institutions that had worked with DEX and, and talked with them about how the nuts and bolts were, of how they utilized it, what the pitfalls were, snags, did they implement it like this or did they try that? And they gave us a lot of great ideas on how to develop a, a protocol utilizing a new agent. One of the other follow-up questions I had for you, if I may, is um, I was just talking to Judith Jacoby about another big pharmacy issue, the shortages, a lot of the drug shortages that have come up, and, and the issue of money and drug costs. And this comes up in my life, actually specifically with dexmedetomidine at, at my hospital, my pharmacist, I'm saying like, yeah, no. And I just, in terms of it being a cost issue, and I wanted to know how this has been sort of integrated as you're designing these protocols or reassessing them from a financial standpoint for your institution. Well, I think we can we could sit as pharmacists and uh, count pretzels and peanuts all day long. And, you know, I think the, the very basis in everyone's training is if drug A and drug B are equal, then you would choose whatever which one costs less. Unfortunately, drug A and drug B, in this case, are not equal, and not even close to being equal, and there is not a paper yet to show that, that anything is equal to dexmedetomidine. Now, it is certainly not a side effect free medication, but its outcomes at this point are pretty difficult to question, and we're looking at it compared to a lot of different agents. Is it more expensive? So far it is. Um, is it generic available? Not yet. But it's very difficult to argue um, $100 in an IV piggyback versus $900 on a ventilator. Um, the long-term post-traumatic stress disorder with uh, vent management and the medications in the benzodiazepine group versus a lot less with DEX. It's, those are our costs I think we need to evaluate as pharmacists and look at outcomes more than just the price of a drug. Acquisition. Just, exactly. It's not just about acquisition. I think Joe Dasta cost. looked at some work like that right. post said. We did a podcast with him on that, actually. Yeah, he, is, uh, he really put it in perspective that you know, each patient uh, that's utilized, that utilizes DEX, um, saves approximately nine, $9,500, something like that, per patient. So we really see what pharmacoeconomics really is. One of the questions I had for you, sir, is that the, these protocols often are sort of by definition inherently profoundly multidisciplinary. And so um, the other question I had for you is this, the daily spontaneous breathing trial and daily sedation vacation, may, you may be, t you are obviously getting respiratory therapy integrated into it as well. And so my other question is, is it set up that by default patients are lightened up every morning and that respiratory therapy comes by? And if you'd like to talk about that, that would be great. Yes, um, the, the intent is for every mechanically ventilated patient to, to be evaluated every morning uh, for an awakening and breathing trial. Uh, if the sedation algorithm is going according to plan, the patients are already at a, a, a Richmond scale of zero to negative one, so there's really not anything to turn off. Uh, they have a, 
an awakening safety screen and whether they have ARDS and are on 70% FiO2 or whether they are are ready to excavate that day they go through that process we there there is a uh, a sheet placed at every bedside uh, and the the nurse checks off what the patient's current sedation score is uh, and performs the test and checks the results of that test uh, what, did they pass did they fail if they failed what what was the reason that they failed and we collect these sheets every day and so there's this sense that this is a formal record uh, the when they awaken and are reasonably uh, coherent then and, and meet the criteria then we go on to the the spontaneous breathing trial safety screen and the RT does that so every, every morning there's communication at shift change between the night nurse and the night therapist and the day versions of both of those uh, and and the timing of that for each patient is is based on whatever else is going on but it's done in every patient every morning at least once uh, and then when the spontaneous breathing trial passes the CPAP of five pressure support of eight for two hours and we get a, a, a force vital capacity and a negative inspiratory force that's communicated to the intensivist and we prioritize that we drop what we're doing go look at the patient and extubate uh, and, and we have that we collect data all during the month that's presented at every monthly ICU meeting about uh, in particular, the percentage of the patients that are extubated within 48 hours after their first successful spontaneous breathing trial. So, uh, it, it, it is it is a great project that involves all the key players in the intensive care unit. And and I, you know we we did the early goal directed therapy as a initial kind of multidisciplinary difficult type of uh, approach and. Once we had success with that, it, it made it easier to, to take on this project and to have that kind of collaboration. It, it, it really kind of empowers the entire unit because everybody sees that they're part of it. They participated from, from the order set on. Uh, when they make comments, we change. If, if the sheet is not clear enough to them, we alter it. So it, it, you know, it, it takes, it's not a top-down driven process it really is a group of people who are all trying to do better i i think the way i was going to end uh, wind up the podcast because we're kind of out of time is if you are giving advice to a, a critical care fellow who just finished fellowship and is starting in a hospital and there are new charges you need to start a sedation protocol in your icu what would each of you give as sort of the important lessons you've learned uh, to do this successfully well it it is it is not so simple. You, you, you just have to, to step back and, and reassess your goals uh, from a sedation standpoint as it fits in with everything else. Uh, but you really have to, even before that, you have to establish a, a working team, a, a group of people who, who see their jobs as not just doing their day-to-day -day work, but coming up with ideas and and altering their behavior to do better. Uh, and if, if you can get that going, then the rest of it's a little more easy. Troy? Uh, I would agree. Um, I think when you ask the, the smart physician, uh, it, it can't come top down. The smart physician asks other people, uh, how would you do it? And how would you do it? And if we had to get somebody off the vent, how would you do it? And you look at the different disciplines, 
um, they each provide a, a nice piece to the puzzle that completes the picture of how to get patients weaned off the vent. And uh, when it comes to the sedation protocol that helps achieve that and appropriately sedates patients, those same people are going to come up with great ideas. How do you think a patient best is sedated in the ICU given the things that you know have to take place? What are your goals for the day and how would you develop a protocol to achieve those goals? And, and go around to the different disciplines and ask them how they would design it and, uh, and lead the group. The thing you said before that I've heard over and over and over again that was just really beautiful is this team building. It over and over and over again, and, and learning this from 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 NASA and airlines that that these teams that get to know each other and work with each other, everybody's happy because when they feel that we as a group have built this, then then there's the buy-in, and it's exactly what the two of you are saying, and I think it's a really really great way to sort of end up here. I've been speaking today with uh, Troy. Batterton and Dean Sandifer. They are the critical care leadership part of Lakeland Regional Medical Center. And we've been talking about designing, building, and keeping sedation protocols or protocols in general going in intensive care units. Thank you, gentlemen, very much for being part of the podcast today. Thank you. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website, at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information, as well as over five years of archived podcasts. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. The Paragon Critical Care Quality Implementation Program utilizes a combination of self-assessments, teleconferences, site visits, peer collaboration, consulting, and coaching to help hospitals develop high-functioning critical care teams. To transform your critical care units through participation in the Paragon program, ask to speak with the Paragon Critical Care Program Manager. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the Medical Co-Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.